party night. But she finally did, and she looked, looked in her butt. last couple of weeks we've been looking at the first 10 verses and uh, today I'd like to pick up with verse 11 and uh, and look at verses uh, 11 through uh, 15 or 16 so uh, a lot in here to uh, think about and explore so we'll just see how well we do but let's uh just to kind of keep the context in mind, let's uh, go back at, and start reading in verse 1 and just read down through verse 16. Paul says, I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Or do you not know that the Scripture says in the passage, what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleased with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. And I alone am left. And they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. I say then, did, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment or their fullness be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. Okay. Well, as I say, the last couple of weeks we've been going through the first ten verses. Last week, particularly, we looked at two through ten. Uh, so, what kind of things do you recall that we talked about last last week, particularly? Yeah, yeah, good, great. What is the 
What is the basis by which this remnant comes to be? Pardon? Faith, okay. Specifically, okay. Uh, what does he say? He says, he says this remnant has come to be on the basis of what? Grace, yeah. God's gracious choice. Or faith is, as we said last week, faith and grace are linked together in that. Uh, so, so this remnant then that exists, exists because of the promise that God has made, a promise that is believed, uh, and, uh, and this is all based on God's grace or on God's choice of grace or God's gracious choice, as it says there in the passage. The literal translation is God's choice of grace. And so, God has chosen that He is going to save those who believe in Him, and that is predicated not upon their merit or their works or their goodness, but it's predicated upon God's grace. Okay? So, what else did we learn? If this is the remnant, what does he say about those that aren't the remnant? Remember, we're talking about ethnic Israel here, those who were born Jews. They are hardened, okay? And uh, we're going to explore this a little bit more, this idea of hardening today. But, uh, but what are some of the things we know about hardening? We've talked about hardening and some of the things that we know from Scripture about this idea of hardening. What is its purpose? Actually, it has two purposes. Can you remember what are they? What's, what are the two purposes of hardening that we encounter in Scripture? Okay, okay. And that's kind of the second reason or the second purpose for hardening. And we oftentimes don't think about that. But one of God's purposes for hardening is salvific, is to effect salvation. And uh, in the case of Pharaoh, we see that the hardening of Pharaoh served to spread the news of God's power and God's uh, saving uh, power throughout the nations. And ultimately, we see examples like Rahab who heard of that and were saved. And so one of the purposes of God hardening people is in order to effect salvation in others. What we're going to see today is that God's purpose in hardening people also, one of his purposes is to effect salvation in the life of the person or the group that is hardened. So it's not only that God works to save others through the hardening of an individual, but that he hardens an individual or he hardens a group in order to save them. And that will be demonstrated here with the nation of Israel, as we'll see. So one of his purposes in hardening is salvific. And the other, which is usually more obvious to us, is what? Okay, judgment, yeah, or retribution. So it can be, uh, so hardening can be both punitive and salvific, or having sal uh, salvation purposes. So it can have either one of those purposes. So as we think about the fact that God has chosen this remnant by grace and the rest of Israel has been hardened, the question comes up then. Is that the end as far as Israel is concerned? Has God written Israel off? And in fact, Paul asked that question at the first uh, of the chapter in verse 1 and verse 2 where he says, or verse 1 particularly where he says, uh, God has not rejected His people, has He? The question comes up, has, uh, has God just written them off? Okay? And so the question arises, is, 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 is Israel just no longer factor in God's consideration? Does He no longer care about them? Does He no longer love them? Does He no longer plan to work through them or show His blessing to, him as, to them as He has in the past and as He promised to do? And those are the questions that Paul is wrestling with. And in this chapter, Paul answers that question by making it clear that, that God's dealing with Israel and His hardening of Israel and, and, uh, and, and His discipline of Israel or his punishment of Israel does not result in a total annihilation of Israel or total rejection of Israel because we see there is a remnant. Neither is a permanent situation. And that's the question that he deals with 
in the verses that we're going to look at today. Because in verse 11, he asks the question, he says, did they stumble so as to fall? Verse 11, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? And uh, uh, I, I, think of, I think a lot of illustrations, it's kind of funny how often I see illustrations of this principle. What is he, what is he talking about when he talks about stumbling so as to fall. I, I was uh, uh, out at the lake. I, as, I, as you know, I usually go out to the lake on Saturdays to work on my lesson and pray over it and meditate on the passage and kind of think through some of the things we want to talk about. And I was, uh, I was sitting there in the car kind of still going through my notes before I got out to walk and, and pray and things. And so I was sitting there in the car and I was going through my notes and, and in the parking area and over not too far away there was a there are not many people camping at the lake this time of year, but there was a there was a gentleman there with his teenage son, and they were pitching this large tent, uh, getting ready, I guess, to spend the night out there or the weekend. And uh, and so I was watching them. The kid was probably in mid-teens, 15, 16, and it was kind of neat seeing just a son and a father and son out there uh, planning on spending the night camping out there at the lake. And so I was watching them, kind of enjoying, thinking about that. And, and as they were pitching this fairly large tent, the father was walking around and, and, and he did what I've so often done when I'm pitching tent. He kind of cut a corner around the edge of the tent and he caught his foot on the stake that was holding the tent down. Okay, And, you know, he started to go down, but he did not. He stumbled, but he didn't fall. Okay, Well, in contrast to that, there's my experience. I'm not quite as quick on my feet, you know. And so uh, this week I was working on a house. I was up on an extension ladder uh, working on a house. And, and I had a couple other ladders I was using. And so I had this large kind of heavy uh, step ladder that was kind of setting off behind my, behind my extension ladder. And you guys are grinning already because you just know what this is going to look like. And I'm coming down off this ladder. And as I occasionally do, I forget which step I'm on, you know, so I think I'm on the bottom step, but I'm actually on the one above it, you know, so I step off thinking I'm going to hit the ground and I go another foot down before, you know, so I start to stumble backwards, okay, and and uh, and I'm stumbling back and then I hit that other ladder, you know, that's behind me, and so that knocks me off balance and I go down on my back and, you know, roll in the driveway and, you know, and fortunately, I work alone, so not a lot of people see these things that I do. You know, uh, I did that one time a number of years ago with a bucket of paint in either hand yeah. on, a, on a driveway in the middle of July. You can imagine how quick that paint dries on a driveway in July. But at any rate, so, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, I fell so as to, I stumbled so as to fall. Okay, that's the idea that Paul's conveying here. What is the extent of their stumbling? He's already talked about the fact that Israel has stumbled over the stumbling stone. We're back in chapter 9, okay? And he's brought that up. The idea of them stumbling. Well, the question is, how severe is their stumbling? Is this a, is this a, is this a total thing? Is this a Rick Harvey thing? You know? Or is this, uh, uh, is this uh, uh, a, less, uh, a less permanent situation? So the idea is, have they stumbled in some kind of irretrievable way? Has Israel's stumbling been so bad that there's no recovery from it? That they have so stumbled so much that God has just totally written them off and He's never again going to bless them or deal with them as He has in the past? That's the question He's asking. Okay, So He says, they have not stumbled so as to fall, have they? And then he comes back with that answer he has so many times in the book of Romans. He says, may it never be. And then he goes into this kind of interesting line of argument. It seems like he's just totally gone off track, right? Like he's, you know, I, I want an answer. to. I want to, I want to know, Paul, how do you know that they have not stumbled so as to fall? How do you know that this stumbling of them it's not some kind of irretrievable thing where Israel has been written off permanently. You know, there, are, there are many, many Christians who think that Israel is just completely written off. Many believers think that Israel is no longer an issue to God. He's dealing with the church now and he will never again deal with Israel in the ways that he has in the past. 
And that's the question that Paul's wrestling with. And I want to know, Paul, how is it that you know that this is not a permanent situation? And so he says there in 17, he says, or excuse me, 11, he says, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. So he's starting, he's, he's, we want him to answer this question about whether or not Israel's stumbling is, uh, as, is permanent, whether they have stumbled so as to fall. And he goes off on this thing about, well, their transgression resulted in salvation for the Gentiles and, and, and the purpose of that is in order to make them jealous. What does, he, what does he mean when he says their transgression has brought, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles? What does he mean by that? Pardon? Okay. Okay. So one thought, uh, one thought there is the idea of their crucifixion of Jesus, their rejection of Christ, their crucifixion of the Messiah, and that through that, Salvation has come to the Gentiles, and that's part of it. What What's the other aspect of it? The other aspect, I think, is there was religious acts that come only that, not really acts of worship anymore, which is just practicing. Okay, but how has that brought salvation to the Gentiles? Okay, okay. And, and we actually see that specifically mentioned several times in the early history of the church in the book of Acts. We see uh, several times where Paul, as according, as according to his habit, his custom was, whenever he went into a new city, where would he go first? He goes to the Jews. He goes to the synagogue. Now, now, that makes sense for several reasons. One, he's a Jew. Okay? So, he would naturally want to go to his own people. And so, he would typically go to the Jews. I think he went to the Jews first because he says, as he says early in Romans, that the gospel came first to the Jews. Okay? So he would, but also, it was a very pragmatic thing. If, uh, because of the way the synagogue was structured, uh, it was kind of an open forum. There was always an open opportunity for various men to speak much like we have in the New Testament church where in the, in, the, in the worship service and the church services of the early church, all the men were enjoined to share a psalm or a, or a hymn or a, or a passage of scripture or whatever. And so, uh, so this was apparently the way the church practiced in the early years. And that's the way the synagogue worked. So when, and particularly when somebody came from out of town, when there was a traveling Jew came through and he came to the synagogue, he was encouraged to speak and to share because he could tell them what was happening in other synagogues and other parts of the world and and uh, share his perspective and his insight on scripture and so they would do this so it was very so when Paul would arrive in a new synagogue he was he was oftentimes given the floor he was welcome to speak and then he would share about Christ and he would share about what had happened with Christ and how he was a fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And so he would present to them their Messiah. And he would do this uh, habitually in every city he went to. But we see particularly in several cities where it's specifically mentioned. One of them is in Acts chapter 13 of Pisidian Antioch. When he arrives in Pisidian Antioch, he goes to the synagogue and he begins to present Christ. And after a period of time, they reject it. They, they chase him out of the synagogue. They don't want to hear any more of it. And he says, okay, if you don't hear it, I'll go to the Gentiles. And so he goes to the Gentiles and he shares it with the Gentiles. Because by now, uh, after, uh, after the middle of chapter Acts, Acts chapter 8, 9, and then Acts chapter 15 with the council in Jerusalem, the Jews know that this gospel is also intended for the Gentiles. So once Paul is rejected from the synagogue, then he would go to the Gentiles. And he did it in Corinth, and he did it in Ephesus. And then ultimately, at the end of the book of Acts in Rome, after this, of course, after this letter is written, he goes to Rome, and, he, and when he first arrives in Rome as a prisoner, he wants to speak to the Jews, and they listen to him, and then they reject the message, and he says, well, then I'm going to tell it to the Gentiles. So over and over again, the Jews' rejection of the gospel message prompted the early believers to then go to the Gentiles and preach to the Gentiles. Okay? Uh, one of them I'm thinking of is uh, when Jonah went to Nineveh, 
Yeah. And because they went, they repented. You saw that. But another uh, an example of the Gentiles being reached out. Another another example, which I think is very striking, when the Magi come to uh, Herod uh-huh. and the scribes, and yeah. like, where did the kings? Yeah. They've been looking for the Messiah all this time. Yeah. What did they say they had? Yeah. But well, those are good examples. The yeah. Came by and, and instead of going, you know, instead of being provoked to jealousy, they're like. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. So so what Paul has experienced here is when he's when he's writing here about salvation coming to the Gentiles, it's something Paul himself has, has experienced. He's encountered this. He's gone to the Jews over and over and over again, and over and over again they have rejected it, and so he's taken it to the Gentiles. And when he goes to the Gentiles, he finds this remarkable acceptance, this remarkable openness to the gospel that he never encountered with the Jews. And so that's what Paul is describing. Now, how does this connect? We're going to have to figure this out. How does this logically connect as an answer to the question he was asking? Which is, has Israel stumbled so as to fall? Have they irretrievably stumbled? Well, so he gives us this kind of sequence of events to explain to us why he knows that they have not irretrievably stumbled. And the first step in that sequence of events is that their transgression has led to the salvation of the Gentiles... To what end? Verse 11. To make them jealous. Okay. I'm going, oh, now wait a minute. You mean, the only reason God saved me as a Gentile is to make the Jews jealous? Is that what he's saying? Okay, okay. <laughs> okay, okay, exactly. Certainly God's purpose, His purpose has always been to save the Gentiles. His purpose has always been because He loved the Gentiles and He wanted to save them. He made it clear from the very beginning to Abraham. He says, through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's always been God's purpose. And God's intent has always been through the Jews to reach you and I as Gentiles. He's always wanted to do that. His purpose, of course, was to do it through through the Jewish faithfulness to him and their obedience to him and their love for him and his subsequent blessings upon them as a nation. That's how he wanted to do it. But, of course, God in his foreknowledge knew that Israel would eventually reject him. But God's purposes were not to be thwarted. So he had a purpose and a desire to reach the Gentiles. He was going to do that. And if he couldn't do it through Israel's obedience, he would do it through their disobedience. And so he moved through their disobedience. But God's love for the Gentiles is matched by his love for the Jews. And so not only does he want to reach the Gentiles, But in the process of reaching the Gentiles, he's going to use that somehow. He's going to use this to win the Jews back to himself. That's what Paul is implying here when he says to make them jealous. Now, he's just simply implying it here. He'll state it specifically and overtly in the verses that follow and in the verses we'll look at in the next few weeks. But... But what he's saying is, as I reach the gen- as the gospel salvation comes to the Gentiles, as the Gentiles are reached, this will end up provoking the Jews to jealousy. Now, you have any problem with that? <laughs> it does, doesn't it? You go, now wait a minute, Lord. Uh, you know, I just, how is it that you, you excite this, this feeling, this jealousy in the Jews and you use that somehow to get them saved? Well, 
as it works out, it's not quite that way. But but let me just point out something before before I explain. It's not as bad as it looks. None of you were saved for good motives. None of you came to Christ out of pure motives. All of us had sinful desires and sinful motives that were part of our coming to faith in Christ. That's what grace is all about, folks. He didn't save you because your motives were pure. He saved you because He's a Savior. He didn't save you because your motives were pure. He saved you because you trusted Him to save you because He's a saving God. That's why He saved you. So even if their jealousy was evil, it is not an obstacle to salvation. Because where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Okay? But, I suggest to you that this kind of jealousy that he's talking about here isn't even an evil jealousy. You see, jealousy is used, this idea of jealousy is, is, is an idea of an intense desire to incite something to jealousy or someone to jealousy is to create in them this intense desire for something. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. Can you give me an example of a good jealousy? Okay. 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 You get a little envious and kick it into high gear. Good point. Do, do you have some example? Pardon? Okay. The best example is God. And in fact, Paul has quoted that passage in Deuteronomy just a few verses ago. Paul quoted from Deuteronomy in which God says, you made me jealous by going after these other gods. So God has a jealousy in which his desire for incitement is incited. His desire and his love for his people is incited and, and actuated, activated, if you can say that about God, in part by their going a-whoring after other gods. And God is jealous for that which is rightfully His. Okay? And which is holy. So God is, God's jealousy is a good jealousy. Uh, you could have the jealousy of a spouse that can be either good or bad. You know, some of it is, some of it grows out of control issues and paranoia and things like that. But if you have, say, a situation where a person, just a normal man or a normal woman, normal woman and they discover that their spouse is, has affections for or interest in another person, another man or another woman, that creates a jealousy. There's nothing wrong with that jealousy. If it's a, it's a jealousy that comes out of paranoia and control mechanisms and things like that, of course, it's, it's not good. But if it's just a simple desire to have that which is rightfully mine and, and, and resenting that someone else has taken what God has given to me, well, that jealousy is a good jealousy. And it gets us off a dead center, like Hal says. Okay, It causes us to act, to protect the family, to protect the wife or the husband from that influence. Okay, So there is, there is a good context of jealousy. Okay? Of course, then there's the other kind. We have an example... Again, in Acts 13, the story of Paul comes in and he preaches in a synagogue and, uh, and they're, they're, they're pretty interested. The first Sabbath he's there, they're pretty interested. So they say, why don't you come back next Sabbath and explain more of this to us? So the word gets around the city and when he comes back, the next Sunday, there's a whole crowd, a whole mass of people there to listen to him because there's so many people interested. And it says the Jews seeing the crowds were moved with jealousy. So here's a case where the Jews were jealous of Paul. Why? Because he had all this influence. He had all this people who were interested in him. Here they are, you know, and they got things to say and nobody wants to listen to them. And here comes this stranger into town and within a week he's got this whole crowd of people that want to listen to him and they were jealous. Okay. Well, that's obviously not the kind of jealousy that Paul wants to inspire that he's talking about here in chapter 11. I guess the thing that makes me think about it is I don't see the Jews being jealous. I mean, for the wrong reasons, like you said, they went after him, but I don't see them wanting what Christians want that much. Okay. Well, 
that's a good point, and we're going to explore that a little bit. Okay, I want to come back to that, uh, but but just kind of building towards that point because that is a question we have to ask: is, is that happening? Does that happen, or whatever? What Paul is shooting for here, what he understands is going to happen is that as the Gentiles get saved, it's going to provoke the jealousy in the Jews. Now, going back to the, the issue, is this a good thing? Well, in reality, we do this in evangelism all the time. One of the things we do as believers, one of the things we're very conscious of as believers in wanting to win our lost family and friends to Christ is we want them to see in our lives, right, things they desire. We want them to see the the joy of the Lord. We want them to see the peace of God. We want them to see the, 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 uh, the stability of faith in our lives as we confront conflicts and difficulties. We want our unbelieving friends and family to see that because we hope that it will incite in them a desire for those things and then they will inquire more about Christ. Right? So this whole idea of inciting jealousy or moving somebody to jealousy is not really all that foreign of a concept. We just don't put it in those terms. Paul's putting those terms because he's just quoted from Deuteronomy. And the Lord has said, you made me jealous... Now he says, I'm going to make you jealous by a people that are not a people. Okay, remember that passage in Deuteronomy 32.21. So, so that's the idea anyway that Paul's getting at. And the question is, does it work? <laughs> I think that's kind of the question that, that Mike is asking here is, does it work? Has it worked? Okay, but let's just leave that for a second. We'll come back to that. But he says, uh, he says, that salvation has come to the Gentiles in order that it might provoke this jealousy in the Jews. And then he goes on and he says, Now, if their transgression is riches for the world, verse 12, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? And so, Paul is not suggesting here that this incitement to jealousy has already been successful because he talks in the future about their fulfillment. Okay, So, that's something we haven't seen yet. And he says, what will that be like? He kind of raises the specter of the question, what will it be like if this ever happens or when this ever happens? But he's making an argument here from the lesser to the greater. He's saying... If their transgression resulted in this riches to the world, and if their fulfillment or their fullness, excuse me, uh, their uh, failure, he says, if their failure resulted in riches to the Gentiles, then what will their fulfillment be? So he starts with the lesser, their Rejection of the gospel, their transgression, their failure. He starts with that and he says that resulted in this really good thing. If this, their failure, their transgression resulted in this really good thing, riches for you and I as Gentiles, then what would happen if they were fulfilled? What will happen if they were saved? What, would, what effect would that have? on us as Gentiles. That's the specter that he's raising, which by implication implies it hasn't worked yet. <laughs> it hasn't worked yet. But clearly, that's what God said in Deuteronomy was going to happen. So Paul expects it to happen and he'll actually give us a clue in these verses of when it's going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. And in fact, even in Paul's experience, Paul acknowledges it hasn't happened yet. And we'll get to that in a minute in the next verse, okay? But, but he's making this argument from the less of the greater. And he, and he talks about the two aspects of Israel's stumbling in verse 12. There's the transgression and there's the failure. 
You notice that he says in verse 12, he says, now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles. And you could assume there that when he's talking about their transgression, and their failure, he's using the term synonymously. But I actually think he's got two different things in mind there. Both of them as part of Israel's stumbling. And the first is their transgression, which he says has resulted in riches for whom? For the world. Okay. The next sentence, the next uh, uh, part of the verse says he talks about their failure being riches for the Gentiles. But the first one, the transgression, is riches for the world, which would include who besides the Gentiles? The Jews. Okay. So their transgression has resulted in riches for the whole world, for Jews and Gentiles. What would that be? What what is the transgression that has resulted in riches for the whole world? The crucifixion of Christ. Okay. So I think it's his reference to transgression there is his reference to the crucifixion of Christ. Their killing of the Messiah. Okay. And this is a terrible thing they did. It was a horrible, horrific thing that they did. But it has resulted in riches for the whole world. Even for themselves. And he says, their failure has resulted in riches for the Gentiles. Now, uh, it gets a little technical here, and I'm not going to go into the Greek and everything on this. But just notice that he's, it seems like he's putting their failure in contrast to their fulfillment that he mentions right at the end of the verse. Okay, So notice he says, uh, he says, and if... Uh, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? So the idea of failure is set in contrast to the idea of fulfillment or fullness. Now, commentators are kind of uh, wrestle with these ideas, and, but I think to cut to the chase, when he's talking about their failure there, he's talking about this phenomenon of only a remnant being saved. Only a little tiny minority have been saved. And the vast majority of Jews have not been saved. But in the verses that follow these verses we're looking at today, the verses we look at next week and on in the next the rest of the chapter, we're going to discover that, that there's a time coming when he says all Israel will be saved. It's going to be after the fullness and he uses the same word fullness or fulfillment there when he talks about the fullness of the Gentiles later in chapter 11 he's going to talk about when the fullness of the Gentiles are brought in and after the fullness of the Gentiles are brought in then all Israel will be saved he says so this idea of fullness has to, has to do with the idea of numbers has to, do with, has to do with the idea of how many are saved and their, so their failure, which is set in contrast to their fulfillment, is a reference to the few that are being saved. And the fact that few are being saved, only a few are being saved, and the vast majority are not being saved at, Paul, at Paul's point in time. They're not being saved. And the result of that is that the gospel then, as we see over and over again in the book of Acts, because so few Jews are receiving it, the gospel is going out to the Gentiles and they're hearing the gospel and they're being saved. So, through their transgression, the crucifixion of Christ, the whole world receives the opportunity for atonement. And through the Israel's failure, through the few that are actually coming and the majority that are rejecting Him, that gospel of the atonement is being preached to the Gentiles and they're hearing it and they're getting saved. If that is true, what would happen if Israel, all of Israel, the vast majority of Israel, 
were to receive the gospel. If their rejection of the gospel, if their, if their transgression, if their crucifixion of the Christ, if their repudiation of their Messiah and their repudiation of the gospel resulted in you and I in Norman, Oklahoma getting saved, What would happen if they all all of a sudden got saved? That's a pretty staggering thought. If God could take their sin and do this glorious thing, I mean, you know, this is this folks, this stuff all happened clear over there, thousands of miles away, across an ocean, in a little tiny country, in an obscure city on at the end of the Mediterranean. It all happened over there. What are we doing here in Norman, Oklahoma, worshiping and serving Yahweh? How did that happen? That's pretty fantastic. And not just here, but across the world. Millions and millions and millions. And all of that because the Jews rejected it. in Revelation as an example. That's certainly true. Magnitude of riches and blessings come. He actually tells us as we go on. Okay? But he takes a little breaker here. A little intermission, if you will, a parenthetical comment. And he makes these comments about him being an apostle of the Gentiles. And he says... He says, but I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Now, I want you to notice that. Because typically, I don't typically, but oftentimes it's easy, I think, when we read all this stuff in Romans 9, 10, 11, and all this discussion about the Jews, it's very easy for us Gentiles living in the 21st century in Oklahoma to go, why do I care? What does it matter to me? I'm a Gentile. This is about the Jews. Why do I need to study Romans 9 through 11? That's all about the Jews and whether or not God is, still loves the Jews and whether or not He's rejected the Jews and whether or not they... Why does that bother me? But notice that Paul says, I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Paul is writing this to the Gentile believers in Rome. Now, as we go through Romans, we remember the Roman church was predominantly Gentile but had a significant minority of Jews in it apparently. But as you go through Romans, sometimes it seems like Paul's kind of leaning towards speaking to the Gentiles in Rome. And sometimes it looks like he's kind of leaning more towards speaking towards the Jews. And it kind of varies as you go through Romans. But he never really makes it explicit. So you kind of have to deduce. Okay, now, who's he really focusing on here as he's talking? But when we get to this passage, he's very explicit. And he says, I'm talking to you Gentiles. You've got to understand this stuff, folks. As a Gentile, you've got to understand it. Now, I just want to point that out to you, and I'm not going to explain to you why until next week. Okay? Because it's not until next week's passage that he actually explains why, but it's very important that we as Gentiles understand this. Or we're going to make a very tragic mistake, and it's been made by the church historically over and over and over again. We as Gentiles must understand this. But he says, I'm writing to you as Gentiles. And he says, inasmuch as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. And he says, I'm really pushing this thing about I'm apostle to the Gentiles. Why does he do that? Why does he make such a big thing out of him being an apostle to the Gentiles? Is it because he wants people to think the Jews are written off? No. It's because he wants to motivate them to jealousy. But Paul is very realistic. <laughs> Paul's dealing with the issue that Mike's raised a, a, a few minutes ago. Okay, He's going, I want to move them to jealousy in the hopes that I might save what? Some of them. Paul's not overly optimistic here. He's not unrealistic. 
Paul does not imagine that he is some kind, somehow going to be the great catalyst that's going to effect this great turning of the Jews. He goes, it's just my hope that I, can just, that I can just make some of them jealous. And so we can't expect that in Paul's day, and maybe not even in our own day, we can't necessarily expect that we're going to see this jealousy that he tells us is going to happen. It's not happening in Paul's day yet. He's hoping it will happen some, but he's not expecting it on any grand scale right away. But it is his goal. One of the things he wants to do, in addition to his love and his passion for the Gentiles, one of the things he wants to do is move his fellow countrymen to jealousy if by any chance he could save some of them. And then he says... For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, and if their accept, then what, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So now he actually tells us what this grand thing is that would happen if they turn. First he says, if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world. Now there are two ways to view this. Rejection and acceptance that he talks about in this verse. It could be, perhaps, that their rejection and their acceptance is their rejection by God and their acceptance by God. So he could be saying, by, their reje- by God's rejecting them, reconciliation has come to the world, and by God accepting them, then life from the dead. That could be what he's saying, perhaps. Or the other alternative is it's the Jews' rejection of the gospel rather than God's rejection of them. And the Jews' acceptance of the gospel rather than God's acceptance of them. So in that case, he would be saying their rejection of the gospel has resulted in the reconciliation of the world and their acceptance of the gospel will result in life from the dead. And I would suggest to you that it is the latter rather than the former. It fits the context, for one thing. It fits the context much better. The idea has been how Israel has rejected the gospel, how they have refused the gospel, etc. That's been the whole context, the whole flow of his argument here. And so that seems to be what he has in mind. Throughout Scripture, God makes it very clear over and over again that Israel's present condition vis-a-vis God is a result of their rejection of him, not his rejection of them. And so that has been the clear emphasis of Scripture throughout. And so I would argue that what he's saying here is that Israel's rejection has resulted, Israel's rejection of the gospel has resulted in reconciliation of the world. And if that is the case, their acceptance will result in life from the dead. So the next question is, what is the life from the dead that he's talking about? Again, commentators struggle with this one. And, and some suggest that it's simply a reference to some kind of great spiritual renewal that's going to happen as a result of Israel's acceptance of the gospel. But I don't think that's the case. And the reason I don't think that's the case is because he's contrasting it with the reconciliation. He's, he's talking about something far greater than the reconciliation that happened in the first part. The first equation is rejection results in reconciliation of the world. You got the whole world reconciled to God as a result of the rejection of the Jews. Now what could be greater than that? When they accept comes life from the dead. I think there he's referring to the ultimate final culmination of history in the resurrection of the righteous. In other words, Paul's telling us that this final acceptance where the Jews finally accept the gospel in a massive number, so much so that he can describe it later in Romans 11 as all Israel being saved, this massive acceptance in which the vast majority of Israel will receive the gospel is associated with the end times. It's associated with the culmination of history and the return of the Lord. So we wouldn't necessarily expect it now, would we? 
unless this is, in fact, that time. But he tells us that that time, that, that time when all Israel is going to receive the gospel, and we'll get to that verse later in Romans 11, but when he, he tells us when all Israel... He says, he tells us when that's going to happen. It's going to happen, he says, after the fullness of the Gentiles is brought in. So, this turning of the Jews in mass back to God to embrace the gospel is only going to happen once the vast majority of Gentiles who are going to be saved are saved. And when that happens, then the Jews will return to God then they will return in mass and we discover that God has shut up all under sin in order that He might show grace to all, Romans 11.32. Getting ahead of myself there. Okay. But, so, God has been working through history in spite of man's sin. God has been working through history in order to save both Jew and and Gentile. And the Jews mistakenly thought that God had no concern for the Gentiles because at that time He was focused so much on them. And they were ignoring all the things where He was saying, the reason I'm doing this is so that the Gentiles can experience my blessing. And they ignored that, but they kept thinking, uh, God doesn't care about the Jews. I mean, about the Gentiles. And now here we are as Gentiles and God for 2,000 years has been working on us and hammering away at us and we've been getting saved and we think that's a pretty cool deal and we like being blessed by God and we look at the Jews and we go, they're not really responding, just a handful of them. And so God's really fed up with the Jews and He's finished with them. And He just cares about us. And the message of Romans chapter 11 is God still loved the world, both Jew and Gentile. And we discover this remarkable thing about God's hardening. Because remember in verses we were looking at last week, we were talking about how God hardened the rest other than the remnant. And we discover this remarkable thing about God's hardening. God hardened the Jews so that the Gentiles could hear to make the Jews jealous so they would get saved. God's hardening of the Jews was salvific on behalf of the Jews. This gets staggered the mind, doesn't it? When you begin to see that all this stuff that is so confusing and so hard for us to understand is actually the providential working of a sovereign God to show His grace to all the world. Now you can understand why by the time Paul gets to the end of Romans chapter 11, he's virtually ecstatic. He's just out of his mind with the glory of God. Because he can take the wrath of men and turn it for his praise. Okay? Well, next week we'll go on. Uh, we'll pick up that verse 16 and go on from there. I know that's the verse you wanted to know about, right? The lump and the root and all that sort of thing. Well, we'll get to that next week.